0: This image is called the Hubble Extreme Deep Field. It was assembled by NASA using 2 million seconds of exposure time collected over 10 years by the Hubble Space Telescope. Some of this, the light in this image is over 13 billion years old. The image shows an area about 132 millionth of the sky. If you held up a printed page at arm's length and looked at a period printed on the page, the area of this image would be smaller than that period. Included in this image are about 5,500 galaxies. A dwarf galaxy contains a few hundred million stars. A giant galaxy may contain more than a trillion stars. Estimates suggest that over two trillion galaxies exist in the universe and that these galaxies may contain more stars than there are grains of sand on the Earth. When I first saw this image and understood what it showed, I felt awe. I thought that I am so small as to mean almost nothing. But I am part of this universe. I am part of the interdependent web of life across the universe. Some people mock globalists, but I wonder if I've become a universalist. One of the sources of Unitarian Universalism is the direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. The key words in this statement for me are direct experience, transcending, and openness. It suggests that we can each experience transcendence if we are open to experience awe. A simple definition of awe is an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, or fear produced by something grand, sublime, or extremely powerful. About 20 years ago, Dasher Keltner at the University of California, Berkeley, and Jonathan Haidt at New York University published an article titled Approaching Awe, a Moral, Spiritual, and Aesthetic Emotion. In it, they define two aspects of awe that make it different from s- similar emotions. They propose that awe is experienced in the context of perceived vastness, and that the experience of awe requires accommodation by the observer. In other words, when you are truly awestruck, you experience something so vast that you cannot reconcile the experience to your current mental models and realize that your behavior must change to accommodate the experience. They point out that most people experience awe in the presence of incredible natural scenes when meeting a person of great impact on the lives of many people or when they come to understand that a concept shifts how they perceive their world. Keltner and Haid wrote, fleeting and rare experiences of awe can change the course of a life in profound and permanent ways. In a religious context, we may be most familiar with stories from the Bible in which humans experience God and are changed by the experience. Keltner and Haid give as an example of awe in a religious context, a conversation in the Bhagavad Gita between the Hindu god Krishna and Arjuna, a prince. In this conversation, Krishna shows his universal form to an awestruck Arjuna. As I read excerpts from the dialogue, please pay attention to Arjuna's expressions of vastness and his struggle to accommodate what he experiences. Also notice that awe may be an experience of fear as well as reverence. Krishna, the blessed Lord, said, My dear Arjuna, Behold now my hundreds of thousands of varied divine forms multicolored like the sea. Behold things which no one has ever seen before. Whatever you wish to see can be seen all at once in this body. This universal form can show you all that you now desire as well as whatever you may desire in the future. Everything is here completely. Arjuna saw in that universal form unlimited mouths and unlimited eyes, it was wondrous. Krishna's form was decorated with divine dazzling ornaments. All was magnificent, all expanding, unlimited. If hundreds of thousands of suns rose up into the sky, they might resemble the brilliance of Krishna in that universal form arjuna could see in the universal form of krishna the unlimited expansions of the universe then bewildered and astonished his hair standing on end arjuna began to pray to krishna arjuna said your form is difficult to see because of its glaring brilliance which is fiery and immeasurable like the sun. You are spread throughout the sky, the planets, and all spaces in between. O great one, as I behold this terrible form, I see that all the planetary systems are perplexed. All the demigods are surrendering to you. They are very much afraid. They are deceived. Disturbed at seeing your many faces. As they are disturbed, so am I. I can no longer maintain my equilibrium. Seeing your radiant colors fill the skies, I am afraid. O Lord of lords, please be gracious to me. I cannot keep my balance seeing your blazing faces. In all directions, I am bewildered. As Arjuna experienced Krishna's universal form, we can't all I- always choose how we experience awe, particularly when we feel fear for our lives. However, we may be willing to place ourselves in situations in which we may experience awe. Research indicates that some people may be more open to awe than others and become more Sensitive to experiencing awe. If we believe in the UU source of direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder, then we should be prepared to experience awe, even though that experience may put our mental models of the world at risk. If we expose ourselves to the risk of experiencing awe, we expose ourselves to the possibility that the experience may overwhelm our current worldview, and that we may have to accommodate ourselves to the natural, human, and conceptual sources of awe. So now I'd like to try a thought experiment with you. I'd like to see if I can help you refresh a memory of awe and how it may have affected your life. Think of this as a brief guided meditation. I will ask you three questions, and after each question, we will stay silent for 20 seconds while you consider your response to the question. So to begin, please get into a comfortable position and possibly close your eyes. My first question is, can you think of an experience when you were awestruck by nature, a person, or a concept, an experience that was so overwhelming that you had to change how you perceived and behaved in the world? My second question is, specifically, how did your perception and behavior change? My third and final question is, can you think of a place, person, or concept that you have not yet directly experienced that may cause you to again experience awe and change how you live. All of us should try to experience awe, but when we seek out awe, we must be prepared for the possibility that we may be overwhelmed by the vastness of our experience, that we may have to change our worldview, and that we accept some risk that the experience could change how we live our lives. I hope that I have the courage to experience awe again and that I become a better person as a result. I hope that you find awe again in your life and that the experience helps you become a better person. And I hope that you too become a universalist so may it
1: be. A few years ago, I remember going to the SAC Aerospace Museum, halfway between here and Omaha, with my wife and kids. At the SAC Museum, they have a tiny moon rock, about the size of this nickel, uh, in a display case. I remember looking at that inconsequential chip of dirt And then later that night, looking up at the moon, a massive orb floating in the sky, suspended by the multiple strings, whatever holds it in place. And I felt small. I think what I was feeling was awe or wonder or something like that. When I was a kid, I remember watching when the astronauts walked on the moon in 1969. The late 60s were a tumultuous time. There were pictures on our black and white TV of rioting and protests and the daily body counts of soldiers who were getting killed in Vietnam. The moonwalks were a bright spot in a troubled time. The theme for this month is awe, which we could say is a word synonymous with reverence or wonder. I felt awe or wonder when I looked at that moon rock. I felt that way before in the Rocky Mountains or at the Grand Canyon. But I must confess that I've also felt something akin to awe in the presence of celebra- celebrities or celebrated people. So I kind of accept the premise that we are wired somewhat to feel awe not only towards natural phenomenon, but also towards people who are above us in the social pyramid. But is the feeling of awe or reverence towards other human beings a good thing or a bad thing? There is a book that I've read and I've, uh, well, I haven't read it, but I always meant to read it, read it. <laughs> but I have seen the movie. It's called (laughs) The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by Frank Baum. (laughs) I don't know how faithful the movie is to the book, but in the movie there's a kind of theme that we should not be in awe of people with great supposed powers and should instead appreciate the people around us who maybe aren't so glamorous and who maybe we take for granted. In the movie, Glinda asks Dorothy, are you a good witch or a bad witch? so too, maybe we should ask awe, are you a good spell to be under or a bad spell? (laughs) We might feel awe towards people who have talents we aspire to have or who have accomplished things we wish we could do, but in my experience, the awe disappears with familiarity. It's like the difference between watching a magic trick and watching a magic trick when you know how it's done. When you don't know how it's done, you feel wonder. When you do know how it's done, you snicker at the deception and perhaps feel cynical. And maybe cynicism and skepticism is some sort of counterweight to our inborn inclination to look up to people who are above us in the pecking order, whether they deserve it or not. I have no trouble feeling admiration, respect, or even fascination towards other human beings, but in regards to feeling awe, my take is that awe can be a dubious thing. In the chalice lighting, I read these words by Anne Frank. I firmly believe that nature can bring comfort to all who suffer. I think I agree with Anne Frank's appreciation of nature, how sad that she had to spend the last two years of her short life suffering, hiding from people who focus their feelings of awe towards a fanatical leader and not so much towards something more wholesome. Our symbol, the flaming chalice, has its origin as a two-dimensional graphic used to make documents crafted by the Unitarian Service Committee look more official. These documents were used to help Jewish people escape Nazi persecution and death just prior to World War II. Unfortunately, Anne Frank was not one of the people who was saved. I think back to, to I when I was Anne Frank's age when she wrote her book back in the 1960s and 1970s. Whatever problems I faced, though they may have seemed monumental at the time, they were nothing compared to what Ann had to deal with. My childhood, while not perfect, was much happier. I remember family vacations. My folks would always take us west to see the wilder parts of the United States. One year, we traveled to South Dakota where I learned the history of the Black Hills, how it was a place of awe and reverence for the Lakota people a holy land, guaranteed to them in 1868 for as long as the buffalo roamed, but taken away six years later when gold was discovered there. Probably the most famous landmark in the Black Hills is Mount Rushmore. On its face are carved the four presidents, all great Americans. Washington was a brilliant general and a sly fox of a politician who was as popular in America as Napoleon would be later in France. But Washington. Did not leverage his popularity to make himself emperor and respected the powers of the other branches of government. However, on the flip side of the coin, he was a slave owner and by far the richest man ever to be president until recent times. Jefferson, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. When he was president, he worked to buy the port of New Orleans and ended up with the entire territory of Louisiana. A a purchase without which we might all be speaking French now. But on the flip side, he, like Washington, held other human beings in bondage more so than any other president. And I could go on. Teddy Roosevelt pushed for campaign finance reform, broke up the trust and helped create our national parks, but he was bullied for war and used gunboat diplomacy to force America's will upon weaker nations. Lincoln, Lincoln stood in the way of white supremacists who sought to confuse and divide our nation for the sake of their own personal enrichment. But unlike Washington, Lincoln had no military acumen and he presided over what was by far the greatest bloodbath in American history. The question in my mind why I'm bringing all this up is though a mountain is an awe-inspiring wonder of nature, do fallible imperfect human beings deserve to be carved on mountains be held in reverence even if they have climbed to the apex of the human mountain, the pinnacle of status and authority. I doubt if this question entered my mind when I went to Mount Rushmore for the first time when I was 10 years old or so. I think my only question was, why is Teddy Roosevelt up there and why is he staring at Lincoln's (laughs) earlobe? Teddy made it to Mount Rushmore but he never made it to any of our coinage. He did help get Lincoln's profile on the penny. Previous to 1909, it had been a long-standing tradition not to put images of presidents on our coinage a tradition that stemmed back to George Washington and his refusal to have himself depicted on a coin because he thought it smacked of royalism and monarchy. I've got this nickel still. Who's on the nickel? Thomas Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was a Unitarian. He wrote in letters that he was a Unitarian by himself because there was no church close by that he could go to. Jefferson was one of the founding fathers who risked his life and his fortune to create our democracy. A great man, if there ever was one, but was he a giant? Or was he a flawed, imperfect human being who filled a pair of gigantic shoes the best he could when his country was in need of leadership. Maybe we are all like Jefferson, just flawed, imperfect individuals trying to fill the shoes we've been given the best we can. All men are created equal, so the saying goes. Well, I'm almost done giving you my two cents. I guess it's five cents today. I started this rant talking about how I was in awe of a rock the size of a nickel, a rock that came from the moon. The moon is only a crescent this evening. I was hoping it'd be full, then I could make a joke about wondering what president might one day get his face engraved on it. (laughs) The wise old moon. Earlier in the service, I said we should avoid going down rabbit holes, but in honor of the crescent moon, As it smiles down upon us tonight with its Cheshire cat grin, I thought perhaps we should end with some dialogue from Alice in Wonderland. Alice, but I don't want to go among mad people. The cat, oh, you can't help that. (laughs) We're all mad here. I'm mad, you're mad. Alice, how do you know I'm mad? The cat, you must be or you wouldn't have come here.